Okay, if you would, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We want to look at Genesis chapter 1. While we're turning, um, let me... Uh, Miss Frieda, have y'all heard anything from Carolyn today? Okay, so she's doing better than I'm saying. Okay, that's good. That's good. All right. Uh, okay, Genesis chapter 1. And what I want to do is, is uh, before we get, kind of get into the, uh, to the um, uh, slides, I wanted us to just look at, uh, at this first together in God's Word, and then we'll begin to elaborate and go from there. And so we're going to pick up with um, Genesis chapter 1. And we're, we're, we're going to begin tonight, in just a few minutes, as you see on the slides, the Edenic Covenant, the Edenic. Uh, on these covenants, you'd spell the word Eden, E-D-E-N, and add I-C, the Edenic Covenant. So we'll study the Edenic Covenant, then we'll study the Adamic Covenant. Sometimes that's referred to as the Adamic Covenant, you've heard that. But A-D-A-M, I see the Adamic Covenant and the Noahic, Noah, N-O-A-H, I see Noahic Covenant. And so that's the covenants. We're going to take those in order as God gave them to his people. And so first we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 28 and just listen let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart as we just read this real slow and see what God has for us. Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28 through 30. Then God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Okay? So that kind of lays out the covenant that God gave to Adam and Adam and Eve. Okay, let's look at this. First of all, biblical definition. I'm talking about biblical definition and our normal function in life. We think of a, a covenant as an agreement like a lease agreement. All of us, from time to time, we've had a lease agreement. We've entered into lease agreements, and we've, uh, we've maybe came out of a lease agreement. I don't know. I leased a car one time, made a mistake by doing that, but uh, finally came out of that agreement. But, um, but anyway, we, we know what uh, some agreements, uh, we call them covenants here, but it's like uh, we think a covenant as an agreement, like a lease agreement or a contract or something, but a covenant, spiritually speaking, is totally different. So let's get this thing away, let's get this out of our mind that a covenant is the same as maybe an agreement that we would make, a lease agreement or something like that. This is a spiritual covenant, okay? 
in the spiritual covenant, a covenant in Scripture should never be compared to what we call a human contract because a covenant in Scripture originates and ends with God. We can't break the covenant. Okay? God makes the covenant. He originates the covenant. And so uh, uh, it ends with God. Now, he can begin the covenant back. We can see where God ends a covenant. Then he begins a covenant back. We'll see that a little later on. But a covenant with God is, is a covenant that he initiates, he originates, and it ends with him. All covenants in the Bible began and end with God himself. That's very important. Right here on them, as we began at the very bottom. All covenants in the Bible began and end with God. Okay? This laid out what Adam and Eve had to do. So now we're starting the Adamic, the Adamic covenant. And so what he does, he lays out what Adam and Eve had to do. Now, Keep your finger there on Genesis. Let's look at that again. This is what they had to do. God blessed them. God said to them, this is what they had to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree filled yields seed you, uh, to you, it shall be for food, and also to every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I've given every green herb for you uh, for food, and it was so. So God had taken care of them up front, everything that they needed, where they were, everything they needed to eat. And so he makes this covenant. Okay? Adam and Eve were to be fruitful. And that means just to replenish. They were to be fruitful, uh, multiply, replenish, fill, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it. Have dominion over the earth, but notice, not only the earth, but over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl, fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the, what? On the earth. Now, keep in mind here, we think normally of just in Eden. But we're talking about earth. We're talking, you'll see that in a moment, we're talking about the whole planet. Earth, universe, earth. At that time, as, as uh, we knew earth. So Adam wasn't given dominion just over the Garden of Eden, where he primarily functioned, but he was given dominion over the whole planet, over the earth, over the whole planet. Verse 30, in which, there's, in which he says, uh, uh, I've given every beast, verse 30, of the earth, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth. And so we're not thinking about just a small location. I mean, Adam and Eve had the, they had the earth. Keep in mind, the earth, Okay. They would eat everything they grew naturally. They would kill nothing for food. Everything was kind of vegetarian, you might say, at that time. Every green herb was given. They would uh, kill nothing for food, nor would any of the created life kill for food. Everything would, uh, everything would eat things that grew naturally. It's a little different today. 
you know, we had steak last night, you know. And we, you know, from time to time, we'll have salad. That's all right, but we always like to have a meat and, meat and three if we can find one. You know. But God says everything you're going to eat is going to grow naturally. And now God forbids. Now, this is what he did for them. And now we're going to see what he forbids. Go over to chapter 2. And I told you to bring your Bible because we're going to use them. Because Scripture won't be up there. It's too much typing. Okay? So look at Genesis 2. And this is what he forbids. And so the Lord God commanded a man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God's given the man everything that he needed, but then God, in his covenant, gives some things that are forbidden man. Okay? But along with all the other aspects of the covenant, they're now given the responsibility not to eat of one tree in the garden. It says the day that they would eat of it, death would be the result, and it would be spiritual death first, and then it would be physical death. So they have everything good laid before them. One thing primarily not forbidden, a couple of things, you know, you just eat, eat herbs, don't eat anything else, but then at the same time, um, whatever you do, don't partake of this tree that's in the center of the garden. And if you do, it's going to bring forth death. Death would be the result. Spiritual death and physical death. Okay? And so you have the Edenic covenant, of course, that sets the stage then for the whole 6,000 years of human, uh, human history. Well, we know this is where man was created, and we know that this is where sin came into the world, and so sin is still in the world today. And so it kind of sets a course for history. So God said it. This is his covenant to Adam, to Eve. Uh, God put it in motion, set it in motion, and then God's going to end it when he, sees, when he sees fit. So that's the Edenic covenant. We won't make any other comments on any other scriptures. So now we're going to con- come to the Adamic covenant. The Adamic covenant. Now, if you will... Um, look to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Keep your finger there, and, and we're going to refer to Scripture passages there in Genesis 3. But now the Edenic, and now the Adamic. By now, Adam has eaten the forbidden fruit. We don't know how long it was when God told them not to partake of the fruit until they ate of the fruit. Some rabbis say that it was 28 days, but we don't know for sure. All we know that uh, they disobeyed God, and Adam has eaten this forbidden fruit. We don't know how much time elapsed from the creation to the fall. Adam lived 930 years. So uh, he had a lot of time to think about his disobedience. Just think. Had it all. Had it all, everything that he needed. All of a sudden, sin came into the world, and he had all the years before him to think, what if, what if, what if, you know. So as soon as 
As soon as Adam ate from the forbidden tree, then spiritual death entered. Now, you're well aware of this. We're just putting it in, trying to put it in, in covenant form. Now, as you know, the, the number one culprit that participated in the fall was, was who? Anybody? Satan. Satan. Okay, let's look at this just for a minute. The number one culprit that, that precipitated it all was the devil. The devil. He's described in Genesis. He's described, uh oh, what did I do, Kyle? He's described in Genesis 3 1 as more cunning or subtle than any beast of the field. Let's look at Genesis 3 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, Hath God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, He's described in Genesis 1 as more cunning or subtle than any beast of the field. The word subtle describes the serpent as intelligent, cunning, beautiful to look upon. So he's not an ugly creature. Kind of keep that in mind. Not an ugly creature. Based on the text, Satan must have been an upright, walking, beautiful creature. One that was intelligent, conniving, and believable. Now as I was studying this, I thought it was kind of interesting. And a statement that was made about the serpent being upright walking and uh, I don't know if I'd ever looked at it in that way but uh, part of the curse on the Satan was what on the on the serpent was what he would crawl on his belly the rest of his days okay and when I thought of that part of the curse on Satan as a serpent was that he would crawl on his belly and one one person said this, that would have been unnecessary, that curse would have been unnecessary if that had been the way it had always functioned. In other words, if he's always crawled on his belly, he wouldn't have said, curse the serpent, you, may, you must crawl on the belly the rest of your days. And so the person with some other people said it must have been an, up, an upright walking um, serpent, beautiful, a beautiful creature, walking, beautiful creature, and that's what Satan chose to come to us as. Now, he, he came to Eve as a beautiful creature. Now, we think, and I've always thought, him crawling, but then I went back, and that was the curse that was put on him. And so if he wasn't, there was no need of the curse to crawl on the belly if he... Uh, was walking, or was already crawling on his belly. So I thought that was kind of enlightening. The serpent is also referred to as the tempter, the devil, Satan, the fallen angel, the great red dragon. All of those are, are names that Satan's used um, uh, throughout Scripture. Okay? 
All right. Um, let me see. Let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 12. Turn over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. As we think along of the serpent, and we're in the Adamic covenant. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, let's go to uh, verse 3 and 4. Revelation 12, verse 3 and 4. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Now, great, a great red dragon, having seven heads, horns, seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars. The word stars there is translated angels, symbolically. The seven, uh, third part of the stars are the angels of heaven, and he did cast them to earth. And all of this is depicting the fall of Satan and the angels that fell back in Isaiah chapter 14. All of that's depicting how uh, Satan... Look at Isaiah 14. You turn back there a minute. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How Satan was cast out of heaven. Isaiah, Isaiah 14. Let's look at that just for a moment. So he was a serpent in chapter 3 of Genesis, and now he's a, a dragon. It's referred to as the great dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns upon his head. His tail drew the third part of the stars, the angels of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. Look at uh, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, Son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you were weakened, you who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll also sit on the mount of the congregation on the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high. And so you have the rebellion of Satan mentioned there in Isaiah 14 verse 12. And you have that same thing mentioned here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. And so he's referred to as the, as the tempter, the devil, Satan, the fallen angel, and the great red dragon. Revelation 12, 3 through 4, same person only. Look at that if you will. Same person only. We read that. Same person only. Instead of being referred to as a serpent, he's referred to as a dragon. Look at uh, Revelation 12, uh, the B part of 4. And the dragon stood before the woman. Now the woman in this, in this uh, chapter, in this verse, uh, re is referring to Israel. He stood before the woman, the dragon did, Satan did, which was ready to be delivered. Stood before the woman, Israel, which was ready to be delivered. And of course... Uh, that was the Christ child, and he was standing before her to do what? 
to devour her child as soon as he was born. And so that's symbolic language and how Satan, what Satan wanted to do. And he attempted this with a king. And that king was uh, King Herod. Okay? The woman is Israel waiting to deliver a male child. Jesus and the purpose of the devil was to devour her child as soon as he was born. And, and he used Herod to do that. Okay? Who did Satan attempt to do that? Use? With a decree from Herod that decreed that every baby under the age of two was put to death. Okay? This was Satan's way of interrupting God's plan of salvation for the human race. And so you can see from the very beginning, Satan had one thing in mind, and that was to destroy the Christ child... Uh, to, to, uh, to hinder uh, the outcome of him being crushed by his head being crushed by the Christ child. Okay? Let's, uh, Revelation 12, 9. Look at Revelation 12, 9. And that great dragon that was up in verse 3 was cast out. That old serpent. That old serpent. And so, call the devil and Satan. So, kind of you see the scripture being put together here. Revelation 12, 9, which deceives the whole nation. He didn't just stay in Eden, but he deceived, uh, he upsurred the universe. Uh, Isaiah 14, 12, the devil did not deceive, the devil did not deceive the planet Earth, but the whole universe. And he, he defiled everything. Okay? Defiled everything. So if he defiled everything, God would do something. What's God going to do? Revelation 21. Look at Revelation 21. And we're going to look at the um, Revelation 21. And we'll look at the first part of that verse. Satan has defiled the whole universe, the whole earth. And he said, I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Why did he destroy everything? Why was everything passed away? Because everything had been defiled. And so that hasn't all happened yet, but we're waiting for it to be, take place, but we won't be here. Satan had touched every bit of it in one way or another. After he'd finally taken off the scene, God had one thing left to do and that's to destroy everything that was defiled and start over for eternity with everything brand new okay no more curse no more of the sin and heartache that's uh, that's going to be all brand new never forget that all the world's problems and headache and all suffering is brought about by this single entity and that's of course is is satan Okay, I made a, a note that I don't like to call him a person. Uh, he's a spiritual being, really. Um, but a personality. He has this personality. He's called the tempter, the devil, Satan, the dragon, the serpent. So whatever the case may be, it all refers to the same personality. It's, it's, we refer to him as the devil. Okay? So, covenant review, the Edenic covenant was concerning 
Eden before the fall. The Adamic covenant really sets the stage for human experience. And now we're going to look at the Noahic covenant. And that's a response to the flood. The Noahic covenant. Okay? Now, we're going to uh, show the Noahic covenant with a video. And so you'll just have to take real good notes. This will be really good. And it's from Les Feldick. And... Um, if you would, he's going to discuss the whole covenant. I'm not going to say anything about the Noetic covenant because he does such a good job. And so I'm going to let him uh, take it from here as the Noetic, uh, the, uh, Noetic covenant. again as a result of the curse of Genesis 3 in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground for out of it wast thou taken dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return all right that pretty much consummates then the the covenant that we call made with Adam and set the stage then for the following years of human experience. All right, let's move up to the next one now quickly, to the covenant made with Noah after the flood, and they call it the Noahic covenant, and that will be in Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> Actually, I guess we can start in the last couple of verses of chapter 8. And this is the next covenant. Now, you've got to remember, what is intervened? Now we've had almost 1,600 years of the human experience under the curse, and the only stipulation was that if they re realized or recognized their sin, they could bring an animal sacrifice and uh, God will accept them. But precious few adhered to that, and so for 1,600 years the human race went down and down and down morally, even though we think they went up, up, up technologically. And so by the time we get to Noah's flood, we have multitudes of people on the earth. I think it's reasonable to assume that there were at least four billion or more. And uh, they've gone totally down the tube, morally and spiritually. And now then God is going to move in and judge that generation with their destruction by the flood, and you all know that one. But after the flood, God comes back and he's going to reestablish yet another covenant with mankind. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 8, and let's just start in verse 20. Noah comes off the ark and his three sons and their wives and his own wife, eight people, and the first thing he does is builds an altar. He built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast. Remember, he took seven of every kind onto the ark and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord, verse 21, smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart, now here comes the covenant. I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. Now verse 22, here's the next part of the covenant. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, 
summer and winter, day and night, in other words, the function of our seasons and so forth, will not cease. Now the next part of the covenant then is going to establish what we call human government in order to maintain law and order. See, they had no government before the flood. There was no established system of religion, as we call it today. So there was absolutely nothing to temper the evil bent of human beings. And that's why they went down so precipitously. There was absolutely nothing to slow it. Now, even, even pagan religion, when it comes to maintaining a social order, even a pagan religion is better than nothing because they're at least going to teach them the concept of right and wrong and, and personal rights. I don't care what the religion is. But before the flood, they didn't have any of that. And so that's why it became so despicable. All right, so now then, God is going to temper that activity with establishing the right of mankind to set up an authority to control the behavior of their fellow human beings. All right, now then we come down to that in verse 3. Now every moving thing that liveth shall be food for you. This is the change in the dietary. Before the flood, they ate nothing but which grew naturally. And I don't think that even the animal kingdom was yet that carnivorous as they became, but mankind especially was never given permission to eat anything that caused the loss of a life. But now they can. See, verse 3, this is the change. Every moving thing that liveth shall be food for you, even as the green herb I have given you all things. But here's the stipulation, that if they're going to kill a living creature for food, they had to make sure that all the blood was removed. All right, verse 4, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood. So this is obvious. They are killing living things for food. But the admonition was never eat it without draining the blood because the blood was indicative of life. And that, he says, you shall not eat. Then verse 5, here comes the establishment of authority. Surely your blood of your lives I will require. In other words, there's going to be that deterrent to murder by promising that the guilty person would be put to death. All right, verse 5, surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast I will require it, and the hand of man. Now, in a previous, or in a uh, coming program, we're going to be looking at some of the civil laws in Israel. And it's interesting how they covered every aspect of physical existence. In other words, the law stipulated that if I have a bull and I know he's mean and I know he's prone to attack and if I don't confine him and he kills my neighbor, who's guilty? I am. And what's the sentence? Death. Now that was under the law in Israel. They covered every aspect of the human experience in the civil law or in what the scripture calls the judgments. Now you see, this is just the beginning of all that because Israel's law defined it more in detail. But here we have the responsibility of one human being to protect the life and the property of the other 
uh, human beings around him. See? All right, so verse 5 again. Surely your blood of your lives I will require. Now, you see how plain that is? At the hand of every beast. Now, you know, it was interesting. I read a couple years ago where there was a man-killing tiger running loose in India. And after he had killed several kids and so forth, and he would always go back into the jungle, the government actually set up what we would call a posse looking for humans, and they did not stop looking until they had found that, I think it was a leopard, and killed it. Well, why? Because it was guilty of killing human beings, and God has mandated that. It's for the protection of each and every individual. All right, so even of beasts, God will require that if it kills a man, they were to be put to death. At the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now, that's capital punishment. Now, I know the thing that bothers all of us, and I do myself as much as anybody, is that possibility of putting to death an innocent person, and, and we shudder at that. But nevertheless, when it's obvious that someone is guilty of murder, then the scripture is plain. This has never been withdrawn. The scripture is plain that that guilty person must be put to death, and it's God's only deterrent for holding society together. And then verse 6, I think, exemplifies it. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood. In other words, someone who has purposely killed another human being by man. See? Man's authority under the headship of God. Man by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because the human being was created in whose image? God's image. And you see, this is what's, shall I say, intrinsic to Western civilization, which has been influenced probably by Christianity and biblical concepts more than the Eastern world. This is why we have so much a higher esteem for human life than a lot of the nations in, say, Asia, China, and so forth, where life means nothing to them. And it's because they do not have this biblical concept that the human being is made in the image of God, and we are to respect it with that in mind. Now, even the nation of Israel, I don't think there's a race of people on earth that is as careful about the treatment of their dead as are the Jews. My, they, they won't let a cemetery be uprooted. I know I read in the Jerusalem Post again not too long ago when they were building a highway and a bulldozer happened to unearth some human bones. They had to stop. They would not let them continue with any more road construction until they determined that there were no more human bones in the area. Well, it just comes all the way back to this, this concept that the human being is made in the image of God and consequently must be held up with that kind of an esteem. All right, then as you go on into this covenant, there comes the best part of all, of course, and that jumps over to verse 9. <clears throat> verse 9 in chapter 9, where God again says, I establish my covenant with you. Now remember, God's covenants are begun in God, they end with God. 
The human race has no room to barter or negotiate. God lays it down and that settles it. All right, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, whether it's fowl or cattle and every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the what? The waters of a flood. Never again will God destroy the earth with water. And now verse 12. And this is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. And this is still in vogue. I do set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And as long as we see the rainbow, then that's God's promise that he will never again destroy the whole earth with water. Now, he will destroy it one day with fire, but he will never again send a flood upon the earth. And we have this constant reminder that every time you see the rainbow. Now, you see, the reason this was such a unique promise is because before the flood, it never rained on the earth. Consequently, there were no clouds to cause a rainbow, and it was watered from beneath. But after the flood, the weather patterns come. We have the rainbow, and it becomes then the covenant relationship between God and the planet Earth and everything that's in it. The uh, Mosaic Covenant, and uh, if you would, let's let's take about a five-minute break, and then I'm going to have you out at a at a good time. So if you would, about five minutes, we'll start back about ten minutes till six. And we should with Moses and the children of Israel. Okay, the nation is now out of Egypt. They're gathered around Mount Sinai. They're ready to receive the foundation of the next covenant. And the foundation is the law. Okay? Look at Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 4. Look at that. Exodus 19. We're going to look at 3 and 4. As we think about the Mosaic covenant. Exodus 19, verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. So God is saying, he's in a supernatural way, he brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea to himself at Mount Sinai. When he mentions eagles' wings, that's just symbolic that I've taken care of you. And I've brought you in a very speedy way as possible to myself. Israel is God's covenant people. Notice Exodus 19 verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant. Then you shall be a 
special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, you need to pay real close attention here because this is where God's calling a, uh, a certain people, gathering a chosen people, okay? God says, since I have brought you out of slavery, if, so it's conditional, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. The point is, this is the beginning of God elevating the nation Israel head and shoulders above all the rest of the nations and races of the world. This is why they're called the favored nation. They are called the chosen people. So right here is where he is selecting a special group of people, a special race. God chose to pick this one little nation of people, one little nation of people, and set them above all other nations of the world. And he's going to work through this one nation all the other nations will pass on down the river of humanity. And the other nations are not going to have anything to do with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There'll be an isolated exception here and there. But keep in mind, the Gentiles, the non-Jew, were never the object of God's grace before the calling of Paul. That's very important. And so you have all the Gentiles outside the covenant right here. And we'll talk about that as time goes on. This is very, very important. And so uh, there'll be an isolated exception. We heard of an isolated exception where the Gentiles were taken care of uh, in secret church. What happened there? Who went where? Jonah went to Nineveh. Gentile nation. So from time to time, there's an exception, but for the most, uh, there's isolated exceptions here and there. But keep in mind, Gentiles, the non-Jew, were never the object of God's grace before the calling of Paul. And Paul was known as the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. It was all about Jews. It was about his chosen people and the coming Messiah. Okay? All right, we're going to... Let Les finish this introduction to the Mosaic Covenant. Maybe the whole covenant. Keep in mind the Mosaic Covenant. God's dealing with a special group of people. Calling out a special group. Uh, let me see, Cal. No, I think um, it was uh, uh, 11... Okay, that's close enough. Jot down some scripture and you can go back and fill it in. Now, right there is the beginning then. Chosen people, and here is the first real indication 
You shall be unto me, a, I didn't finish the verse, I'm sorry. You shall be a treasure unto me above all people, and here's the reason. For all the earth is mine. What does that mean? He can do what he wants. God is sovereign. Now, you know, I learn every day. The other day, somebody called and said, Les, do you know the word sovereign isn't in our Bible? Now, you know how often I've used it over the years. I said, no, I didn't know that. And so I had to look, and he was right. The word sovereign, like the word trinity, is not in our Bible. But certainly all the evidence of what sovereignty means is here. So I don't have to stop using the word, not at all. But, you know, it's interesting. Here I've been using a word that I thought was as biblical as anything could be. But it's true. It's not in our Bible, but certainly all the meaning of it is. And here is one of them. If all the earth is mine, what does that mean? He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And this is what he chose to do. He chose to pick this one little nation of people and set them head and shoulders above all the other nations of the world. And he's going to work through that one little nation. All the rest of humanity, as I've used it before, it's just going to flow like old man river to the ocean. And they're going to have nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for the most part. There will be isolated exceptions. Now, the verse that Paul writes that exemplifies that so beautifully, keep your hand in Exodus, come back with me to... Ephesians, had to think for a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. A lot of times people kind of look at me cross-eyed when I let it be known that the Gentiles were never the object of God's grace. The Jews were never instructed except to go to Nineveh. They were never instructed to evangelize the Gentiles, but quite the opposite. They were to keep all of these knowledges of God. Boy, what a word. I coined one, didn't I? All of these things pertaining to the knowledge of God, they were to keep to themselves. They weren't to share it with the Gentile world because God was not in the business of saving the Gentile. And a lot of folks just say, where do you get that? Well, because of language like we've just seen here, but here Paul himself places it. So easy to understand. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. This leaves no room for any great number of Gentiles coming to salvation in the Old Testament economy. It was impossible. Verse 11. Wherefore, Paul writes, and remember he's writing now to Gentiles at Ephesus. He says, Wherefore, remember that you being in times past, what? Gentile. Now, maybe for the sake of one or two listeners out in television, I better stop. What is a Gentile? Well, in plain language, he's anybody who is not a Jew. A Gentile could be an Arab or a black or an Indian or a Caucasian or you name it. If they're not members of the nation of Israel, they are Gentile. Now, you see, all the way from Adam until Abraham, you don't have any particular Jew or Gentile separation. These are all just simply of the race and the birth of Adam. They are what I call the Adamic race of people. But now with the call of Abraham, setting out one little nation separate, and he calls them Jews or Israelites, the rest are Gentile. 
And so from Abraham on, we have that difference in Scripture of Jew and Gentile. All right, reading on in Ephesians. So remember you Ephesians, and of course the churches around them, that you were in the times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. Now what was that? That was a deriding term. That was the scorn that Jews had for the Gentiles. You're called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision or the Jew. Now verse 12. See how plain this is? That at that time, while God was dealing with Israel under these covenant promises, that at that time you Gentiles were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the what? Covenants of promise. That's why we're studying them now today. The Gentile world were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and what? Without God in the world. Now, what does that mean? They were lost. Every last one of them, they were lost. Well, it wasn't God's fault because they had proved for the first 2,000 years they didn't have any interest in the things of God. They had proved by their idolatry out of which Abraham came that they weren't concerned about a knowledge of the one true God. They were satisfied in their idolatry. And look, at that's the vast majority of people today. They're content with their false religion. They're content with no religion. They're not interested in real salvation. And it's always been this way. All right, so the Gentile world then was totally separated from all the covenant promises of Israel. All right, now then back to Exodus 19. We can pursue this a little further for the next few moments. How that now God is going to supernaturally invoke the covenant promise of the religious system of law. Now, most of you know I do not like the term religion. Well, Judaism, the law, was a religion because it was a works thing, based, of course, on faith, but nevertheless, Judaism demanded works, and it was a process, and we're going to be looking at that. They had to do this, and they had to do that. In fact, uh, you might as well drop back down to Exodus 19, verse 8. And that says it all. And all the people answered, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will believe. No, what? Do. And so they gladly embrace a works religion. All right. I think we move on over into now chapter 20. And what is it? The Ten Commandments. Hopefully you've all learned them when you were kids in Sunday school or daily vacation Bible school. The Ten Commandments, which are causing such a furor today. Well, I've got mixed emotions. Naturally, they are certainly God's format for society. The Ten Commandments are still the basic law of God. I'll never take that away. But for us as Grace Age believers, you see, the law is moot. 
It's been crucified with Christ. But for the unbelieving world, it is still God's moral law. All right, now I'm not going to go through all the Ten Commandments. I trust you all know them, forwards and backwards. But here in Exodus 20 now, as the unfolding of the first part of this three-part covenant, we have the moral law, the Ten Commandments. All right, now then, when you come on over to uh, chapter 21, in verse 1, we come to the second part of what we call the law, and it's the civil law, what I referred to, I think, in the last program. Now, in these succeeding chapters, and then on into the book of Leviticus, the civil law covered every aspect of human relationship with other humans. And as I mentioned, if you have an animal that's known to kill, and you let it kill someone, then you are responsible for it. And all the way through, how you dealt with your neighbor in business transactions, morally, how you, how you behaved yourself in society, this was all covered in what I call the civil law. And uh, I think probably a good portion of Israel's 613 laws, which the rabbis concocted out. And it's interesting to see how much of Israel's civil law is a part and parcel of our own Western civilization. I wouldn't doubt that when the British, way back in history, put together the Magna Carta, those men took a lot of their ideas from Israel's civil law, because after all, God was the one who gave it. All right, for just example now then, chapter 20, we start with the term judgments, which means in plain English, rules of government. Now, these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. Now, this is aside from the moral Ten Commandment law. And all the way through now, we have covering the various aspects of Israel's day-to-day -day experience within the nation. And you come through all these succeeding chapters. It's the judgments against uh, or to maintain society in the nation of Israel. Now, I'm going to take you all the way up to the next part of the law, which is the ceremonial, or the ecclesiastical, or the ritual part of the law. Now, remember, you've got the moral law, the Ten Commandments. You've got the civil law, how to deal with your fellow neighbor. Now we come to the ecclesiastical, or the religious part of the law, and that is going to entail the priesthood and the tabernacle, which later became the temple. Okay, now I think we can come all the way up to chapter 24, where we now have what I call the third part of the law of Moses, and uh, verse 3 of chapter 24. Now, this is, just, this is just sort of scratching the surface. I expect a lot of my listeners to dig a little deeper. You can do all this instead of watching the stupid television. Get into the book and uh, pursue this a little further in all three aspects. But now we're getting ready to establish the worship or the 
the religious system of the law. Verse 3, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. See that? God said it. And all the judgments, all these rules and regulations, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Well, you heard that before, didn't you? All right, now then we're going to find that uh, verse 7. He took the book of the what? The covenant again. This mandate that God has now placed upon the nation of Israel. All right, so he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Now you want to remember that blood has been the intrinsic part of God's relationship with man leading up to the shed blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. All right, now as we move on down in chapter 24, you can come to verse 12. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law, commandments which I have written, that thou mayst teach them. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and they went up unto the mount of God. All right, now as Moses is up in the mountain then, starting in chapter 25, God begins to lay out to Moses all the ramifications of the tabernacle. All the aspects of it, all the materials of it, he lays out to Moses just as plain as language can make it. And uh, it was supposed to be built according to the tabernacle, which was already in heaven, and uh, this is merely a copy of it. Now, as you come all the way through these chapters of Exodus, we get to the place of chapter 29. Maybe I'm going too far. Maybe 28. Just a minute. But I want to start with the priesthood here, if I can. Yeah, chapter 29, verse 1. Exodus 29, verse 1. Now, you want to remember, in order to exercise the religious system that's going to center around the temple, the sacrifices, you had to have designated men to carry out all these systems of worship. All right, here we come. 29, verse 1. And this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them that hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. See, now you haven't seen this before. This is something totally new in human history, that God is establishing now a priesthood. And they were to take one young bullock and two rams without blemish, unleavened bread, and so on and so forth. And then verse 4, And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt, watch this, do what? wash them with water. And that was one of the first processes of becoming a priest, was wash, wash, wash. And not only for entering the priesthood, 
But as they would begin to go through the ritual of accepting the sacrifices and stopping at the labor of cleansing and going on into the ministry of the temple or the tabernacle, before they could begin to minister, what did the priests have to do? Wash, wash, wash. Even though physical water could never take away their sin, yet symbolically it was speaking of a cleansing before they could step into the office of the priesthood. And so all of this now becomes then the third aspect of this covenant of law. First, the Ten Commandments, then the judgments or the rules and regulations of civil life, and then the religious system to compensate for their time and again failure. Thank you for watching Through the Bible with Les Feldick. Through the Bible is a partner-supported ministry. If this program has been a help to your study of the scriptures and you'd like to see others enjoy the teaching, you're All the way from Adam, Eve, Noah, and then the Mosaic Covenant. Next week we'll touch uh, on the, the uh, Davidic Covenant. And this is a very important covenant because this, this uh, sets the stage for... Uh, uh, King of kings and the Lord of lords. This sets the stage for uh, David's uh, reign upon uh, the throne and his descendants after that, including Jesus, as it comes on down, Mary and Joseph. And so then after that, we'll have the, Abra the Abrahamic covenant, and that is uh, uh, what we're looking for. But we wanted to go through these first just briefly. On this slide, you might notice some symbols there. And uh, Cana and I were, were talking about these the other day. And so you've got, um, you've got the little triangle. Anyone knows, yeah, I have an idea what the triangle's for. And it's not necessarily a covenant, but what would you think it'd be? Trinity, good, Trinity. And what about the, what about the tree? What covenant would that be? About the uh, Adamic, or the, no, the Eden covenant, the tree. What about this one? That's really a rainbow. So that's the Noahic, and this would be the this would be the Abrahamic. You know, children numbered more than the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea, uh, grains of sand on the sea. What about this mosaic? Yeah. What about this? That's the Davidic. And of course, you come down to the new covenant with Christ. And so we're going to look at some of these uh, in the coming weeks. Hopefully, we'll get to the Abrahamic covenant uh, by week after next. And so, but anyway, thank you for being here tonight. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Appreciate your presence and trying to keep these, get these together and keep them separate. Sometimes it's kindly difficult, but thank you for. Uh, for opportunity, we come together tonight and look at some things perhaps we really never focused on, Lord, and that's covenants. And we can see from the very beginning up until the time that we are now that you have a purpose and you have a plan for this universe and for your people. And so, Father, uh, I know you had chosen people, but, Lord, you've extended that now to the Gentiles and through, Father, through grace and mercy, we're able to come to know you and free pardon of sin and salvation through your son, Jesus. And we thank you that 
that we're no longer uh, without God, without hope in this world, that we do have an opportunity to have a relationship with you, Lord. And thank you for loving us enough to send your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And so, Father, we pray now as we're dismissed from this place. Again, I thank you for each one here, and I pray that as you speak to our hearts tonight, you'll reveal things that are, uh, that are new, things that, that just uh, only you can show to us, and, Lord, that we've never experienced before, just knowledge that would come from your word. Perhaps we uh, glossed over it tonight, but, but, Father, remind us tonight of what we've heard and, to, and read tonight in your word. Thank you again for each person here. Be with us as we go home. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you.